Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver Radio Show another one of the famous names from British Touring Car Championship driving. Um, it's becoming a bit of a, a bit of a fashion now, I'm delighted to say. Uh, and given the fact I've had Patrick Watts on the show and Steve Soper, it will probably bring a wry smile to the face to know that the one, the only Rob Gravit is currently in third place. But nevertheless, I'd like to introduce Rob Gravit BTCC driver to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, Mark, and thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's as I said, you you were you were you were kindly or unkindly volunteered by Patrick Watson, Steve Soper. Whether they've done you a favour or not still remains to be seen. I suppose, especially from your perspective. Well, you must have done something because Steve sent me a text. I was in the states at the time, so I must call this this chat, which was you, obviously, and, and do an interview. Uh, with you, uh, which is the reason why we're now speaking. So yes, uh, so whatever you did with Steve, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> now, if you look at your uh, biography that's dotted about on the internet, the one interesting thing is you appear to have potentially two birthdays, either the 2nd of May or the 10th of May 1956, but I, I get the feeling you don't own up to either. Uh, uh, well, the 1956 bit I don't, but the 10th of May I do. <laughs> So, of course, I'm, I'm now at that age where I have to sort of not lie about my age, but I sort of uh, dismiss the questions generally. When were you actually born? Uh, but the 10th of May is exactly right. So, yes, it, I only had one birthday, not like the royalty. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, depending on who's asking, you, you, you work out, is it going to be an insult or is it going to be, oh, you're looking very well for your age, and you think, well, that's all right, I'll admit to it. Now, looking at this... Um, you started out life at the age of 12 on two wheels. Is bike racing and racing as a whole a family tradition? Well, it's really interesting actually because we, we've never had sport in the Gravit family ever. And I don't quite know even to this day why um, I wanted to start racing initially, as you've pointed out, on motocross bikes. But I wind and wind and wind at my father who eventually gave in um, and we started racing motocross at the age of 12 so really most of my life I have been racing and, and I've been fairly fortunate because um, it, it's a good question actually because a lot of people don't know that I started off in motocross most car drivers you know start off in carts yeah. I didn't do carts I, I, I did motocross so yeah and I was pretty lucky with all of that I, I did reasonably well well, you did well enough to become uh, the British champion by, at the age of 15, didn't you? That's right, I did, uh, and that was brilliant. At the age of 16, I was representing England in the World Championships, um, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know how many races I won, but I won probably 200 races, I would think, in most cross, yeah. um, and a number of championships as well. 
so yes I mean it, it, it was there um, interestingly enough I got to the point I was actually um, with David Thorpe who became the world motocross champion and I used to go to every event every week week in week out he was slightly younger than me two or three years younger than me and he used to win the juniors and I used to win the seniors so when we arrived everybody sort of oh my goodness you know, we're not going to be winning now very <laughs> lucky though that's how they hated it when we arrived really but um, yeah and then I got to a point I started a business when I was very young when I was 17 and I thought I, I got to the point where I, I either had to go fully professional which is what David actually did or or I had to retire. I was worried I might break a leg badly or hurt myself badly and then subsequently damage my ability to run my business. So I decided at a very early age in motocross that I, that I would stop doing it, which is what I did. Right, so that was the, that was the reason for the switch to four wheels. Well, that, that switch didn't happen for three or four years. Um, and I actually had a client that kept, kept talking to me about buying an MG midget, which is a little 1500 midget, um, and, and, and I should start racing on four wheels. And I said, yes, yes, yes. What do you want to buy off me? And uh, anyway, this, <laughs> went on for, this went on for a few weeks. And then one day, this is a true story, they rang me up and they said, you know that car we keep talking to you about, the 1500 midget that's for sale? I said, yes. And they said, well, you've actually bought that car. You need to come round here with your checkbook. It's being delivered tomorrow. We've got your race license sorted out and you're racing at Silverstone in 10 days' time. That is a very true story. And that was a company called Motorbuild. And the man behind that was a guy called Ray Davis. Yeah. Um, and, and they're the people that got me into cars. The other thing that they sorted out for me was that um, the guy that owned the car was a guy called Trevor Lewis, and Trevor Lewis had won the championship in the car the year previous to that, had run out of money, and this car had sat in his garage apparently for 12 months, uh, and they'd arranged for him to come to Silverstone with me and to help me at Silverstone to tell me what I should be doing in the car and all the rest of it. So anyway, I duly turned up. When I did qualify, I think there were 32 cars on the grid. Having never been there before, I qualified the car in eighth position. And when I came back after qualifying, he said to me, Rob, you can't drive the way you're driving. Your lines are wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. And all the rest of it. This particular car actually had the lap record in its class at that circuit, yeah. which, had been, which, which he'd, got, he'd got in the car as a championship winning car on the same tyres a year previous to that. And I said, well, mm, seems to be working for me. So I think I'll just carry on with what I'm doing. Yeah. I then went out and I won the race, broke the lap record in his car. And truly I've never spoke, he, was not, he wasn't there when I got back. He was mortified apparently and I've never <laughs> seen him since. Very true story, that. I mean, b b before you climbed into the midget, apart from driving a car for a living, had you raced a car or done anything previous? Um, I'd actually got in a, a Dolomite Sprint um, probably a year or two beforehand to do the Will Hire 24-hour race. Yeah. And, and that car blew up in qualifying, and I think I did about three laps in it. They got the car running only because I'd paid a reasonable sum of money for running the car uh, until it destroyed itself about three laps into a 24-hour race. So yes, I had been to Setterton, I had done about three laps, I qualified it in three laps and I did about three laps in the race. 
going around at sort of like thirty percent of the pace of the car. Yeah, because it was because it was actually broken. So truthfully, the car, the first real race I did in the car was at Silverstone, and as I said, you know, I was fairly lucky because I won the race. Um, and it sort of all started from there. Did you sort of interest? Did did you shall we say? give yourself a bit of coaching by watching the others or else did you just work the lines out for yourself because I mean everybody knows that there is a a line round the circuit and a line round a corner well my lines if you look at my lines and we'll have another conversation perhaps another time about this are quite different to uh, most other people so so um, uh, we actually teach this now in a, in a separate business that I have um, so I will say your lines are dictated by the dynamics of the car that you are driving, not necessarily by a textbook. So yes, you have to get to the apex of the corner, apex being the centre of the corner, and obviously you need to use all the track on the way out, but it's how you get into the corner yeah. and how you utilise the tyres in the best possible way in order that you can keep the speed up, brake later. You know, if you take a car, for example, or a number of cars that are all similar speed down the straight, how are you going to overtake a car? It has to be done under braking. Yeah. And, so and just putting in invariably by coming offline at times to get yourself where you need to be. Correct. And once you come offline, then you obviously got to get the car back into where you want it to be. So placing the car, there's an art in that, and and, and it, it seems to work reasonably well throughout my career. Yeah. Um, so if you were to stand back and look at my lines, even some, you know, there's a lot of footage out there now, isn't there? Yeah. You'll notice that my lines quite often are not the same as other people's, and never have been. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, the interesting thing is, uh, if you drive like that, it also throws your competitors off, because technically, if everybody is following the line, you can spot, when you're out racing, or even practicing, whatever, how a driver takes a corner and work out the ones that he's weak on, and will probably, or potentially, give you the space. But most drivers invariably do follow roughly the same line. If it's a driver who doesn't does do this, it is likely to throw the others into a degree of confusion until they learn to understand that driver. Well, that's exactly right. And, and part of driving is not just about being able to go around the circuit as quickly as possible. It's understanding what the other drivers are doing, where they want their cars to be, and that should enable you to put your car where they want to be. Yeah. So you can control cars that are behind you. You may be in a slightly slower car, so you know exactly when they want to accelerate. So when they want to accelerate, you don't. Yeah. So the moment they come off the throttle, it's half a second. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So it's all about also controlling other drivers, understanding where their strengths are, trying to work out where their weaknesses are. And you're absolutely right. A lot of drivers do follow the same lines. But uh, as you pointed out, to overtake a car, generally you have to come off the line. Um, and, and then you have to read what the state of the, the, the circuit, the tarmac is like because it may well be by coming offline you've got less grip which is back to where my lines are different and the way I drive a car because most people go unweighted to, you know, all the way into the corner 
And the problem is with that is if you go unweighted, then you can get into a, what they call a rollover steer situation where you'll spin yeah. around the, the axis of the front. If you're going to the right, the axis point would be on the front left of the car. If you unweight the rear of the car, then you can spin going into the corner. So yeah. all, all of these things are all sort of... There's an awful lot going on in a car when you drive the drive quickly. And, 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 of course, boys... I don't think boys generally are the best people to sort of multitask. I've always, my opinion is, is that females generally have a far better ability to be able to multitask than most men. I've, I've um, been told that by one or two other drivers that to teach, and a great friend of mine who is an instructor called Ray Grimes uh, has often said to me the easiest people to teach are girls, women. He said they listen a lot more. He said, and when you've told them to do something, they do it. He said, and it sticks, he said, it sticks in their mind, this is what we must do in this situation. And he said, they are far easier to teach. He said, they're also far easier to make quicker. Well, that is so true, and it's unusual to hear that. So I have a company called Ultimate Car Control, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, market this or promote it, but we have boys and girls in, and, and we tend to find, because it's a very visual thing, the girls will go ahead of the boys, and it's a visual thing, you can see it, because... One, the girls listen. Two, there are no generally less preconceived ideas. Um, I mean, race drivers are the worst people to try and teach because, of course, <laughs> as a race driver, we obviously know everything. Oh, yeah. We actually don't. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of in the mindset, isn't it? So what we do is we take everything out. We go right back to the basic principles of dynamically how a car works because unless you intrinsically understand that, how can you have control in the event of something happening? Well, actually, you can't. So girls listen, they, they learn very quickly, and they do what they're told, because if it makes sense, they'll do it. And, of course, then you've got the multitasking qualities as well. Yeah. Eventually, the whole process, and you'll know this from your driving days, the whole process has to become a subliminal reactive process. Yeah. So what, what that means is, if everything is going on underneath you and you're reacting and adapting and all the rest of it when you're on a racetrack, you can then read what's going on with other people because conditions are changing, you've got other drivers out there, you know, moving their cars around, something may happen, and that allows you to be able to do things. You can sometimes work out what is liable to happen and react to it virtually before it starts to happen. Yeah. Quite interesting when you see this. It's interesting, you talk about when you had Steve on, um, I remember uh, some years ago when he was in the uh, Texaco the, uh, car, it, we were at Bathurst in Australia, and we were going down the Conrod Strait, I was behind him, and we got probably two-thirds of the way down the Conrod Strait, and his rear tyre exploded and just disintegrated. So yeah. we were probably going 185 miles an hour, probably. Yeah. Um, and how he hung on to that car, I have no idea. And I, we talk about it now, many, many years later. Uh, th th that was pure skill. And from Steve's point of view, and I've always had a, a huge respect for Steve's driving, because he's very quick, still very quick now. Um, but he, he, he also managed to keep hold of that car, and it, he never had because all being very Australian, of course, the, the, the walls are concrete. Yeah. So, well, it's very Australian, that is. And he kept out of the wall. Um, yes, it did quite a lot of damage underneath the car, but he didn't hit anything. But that was all about, um, that was all going on. There was so much going on so quickly. That was all going on in an automated way. 
he was dealing with that situation and I've had similar situations probably not quite as high a speed as that but as I say I mean I just looked at him and thought well that's he's going to have a massive accident and you know he didn't so all credit to him for that I think a lot of the time I know we're slightly drifting off subject it's I once had a blowout on an autobahn and I think I was doing about 110 miles an hour um, I was just going into some roadworks, so I ended up driving six kilometres on three three tyres and a rim. When I pulled off, the person who was with me said, how the hell did you hold on to it at that speed? And my answer was, I haven't a clue. I do not know how I held that car, but all of a sudden it blew out. I even remember seeing the rubber going past the, uh, past the passenger side. But... After a while, I think it's one of those things, it's like you just said, it's subliminal. You react before you realise you've reacted. Well, it, it would have been, because of your experience, your historic experience, that would have been a subliminal reactive process. And the analogy or the example that we would use is when you walk from A to B, you don't think left foot, right foot, left foot. Why? Because it's become a subliminal reactive process. You just do it. Yes, yeah. of course you've been drinking, and that makes it a little bit. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. Well, when you're driving, and when you're driving very quickly, and you're driving very much at the limit of a car, that is the process that one has to use. And and I've always been very um, keen. I always thought, and still do, if I drive a race car now, uh, not in a professional way now, but you know, I do get in and out of different cars now. But it's always about how can I keep my tyres in the best possible condition? Yeah. How can I use my tyres to the absolute maximum effect? Because I don't want to use two tyres, I want to use all four tyres. If you unweight the car going into a corner and you're only using two tyres, you've got less grip. Yeah. That's why my lines were always quite different to most other people. And the other thing is as well, it's tyre wear. If you start doing that, you are wearing tyre. And everybody knows that most circuits are either what you would call left corner bias or right corner bias so which means you could be going around more right hand bends than left hand bends so if you're going around right hand bends you will put a more wear more pressure more degradation on the tires on the left of the car that's so correct and, and that's exactly how uh, how i always thought it. And, and you know it doesn't matter how good a driver you are once you get deterioration in the tire particularly in a slick racing tire you you just end up going slower because if if because you've got less grip and that's just how so you get a pressure build up in the in a loaded tire pressure then means the face of the tire will start to grow slightly and and you just get less grip and that's just how it is it's, it's a bit like when I bought Yokohama into the UK. You remember that probably very clearly. Ironically, and since my Morgan actually runs on Yokohamas. Well, I mean, I, and that deal I did with Yokohama, I was in racing Australia and I was coming back to the UK and I made, I, I flew into Tokyo and when I was in Australia, I, I arranged to have a meeting with Yokohama and I went in there blind and did a deal to bring the tyres into this country. I said to everybody they were fantastic tyres, and they weren't. They were terrible. Um, but I wanted everybody else to think they were great, uh, which they all did. But we did an awful lot of development on those tyres very quickly. Their reaction time uh, in, in, in Japan was amazing. We were having tyres flown in virtually every two or three days 
to test and we did most of the work wasn't on the compound it was on the construction of the tire i could tell them what i felt the construction needed to be i clearly couldn't design the, the, the construction and we ended up running a car that was actually pretty good because of course the rs 500s were running huge amounts of horsepower on tires that weren't that wide at the time you know so we had to make the time as hard as we could to try and make the tire live during the course of the race and even though there were sprint races i mean it was great at that time because we were allowed then to run qualifiers and, and oh, right. qualifiers, that was an art i mean you, you you know when you had a qualifying tire the art of that to, to make that tire work in to the to its optimum uh, you had one lap yeah. They were good for one single lap. We had to set the car up very differently because the, the, we had so much grit. I'd go into a corner and, and wait the absolute um, last moment to brake, and then I'd count to two and then brake. Yeah. <laughs> That's how much grip we had on the tyre. But the car, we had so much grip on the car, it was just two-wheel. Yeah. So we had to change the setup of the car to running qualifying trim than we did in the race because we obviously had less grip in the race tyres than we did on the qualifiers. But they were great times. I mean, they were they really were. And obviously, we could use tyre warmers and all that sort of stuff. And nowadays, they've got twice the size of the tyres, well, they certainly look like it, and a lot less power. Now, you mentioned the R, the famous RS500, uh, which brings us neatly back to touring cars how did you progress from uh, an mg midget to driving the ford sierra rs 500 in the btcc so in the, the, the following year and i'd started mid, mid year in, in the little 1500 mid year i won the championship um in, in the following year i then bought a car um a, a full race spec mgb and i then won, went out and I won two championships back to back the same year. Yeah. So I, I won the MG Owners Club Championship and I won the MG BCV8 Championship in the same year. Yeah. Which nobody had ever done before and was quite difficult to do because I was going to one circuit, qualifying at one circuit, either getting in a car or flying to another circuit, qualifying in another car and then bouncing backwards and forwards. And I, and I ended up, I, I won. Um, 18 races that year and as i said two championships back to back yeah and at the end of the year um i said well that's great it was a great series both series were great to do but i'd won that so i needed to move on um and so i looked into um what i could do next and and production saloon car racing was growing um incrementally you know it was a big thing then um, which, which, and all the top drivers were there. You had the Harveys, Tim was there, uh, I was there. Um, a lot of the big names were there at the time. So we went out and bought a. Well, I went out and bought a, a, a Sierra Cosworth, uh, which I managed to get off of Brooklyn. We found one that didn't have a sunroof in because it was a race car. I drove it home, um, and then we stripped this beautiful car out put a roll cage in it and went racing yeah and the following year i was going to do the uniroyal production saloon car championship and i went out in the first round luckily enough um i won it i'd gone to mountain so dave mountain i wanted to go to an engine builder because i'm sort of slightly abnormal i think i wanted to go to an engine builder that nobody else knew yeah so i 
went to speak to Dave Mountain, who was building sort of fairly cheap race engines at the time, and I said, look, this is what I want to do. Can you, are you interested in helping with this? And he said he was. Um, and so we went out. Um, I won the first race. The second race for the Unirail Championship was at Thruxton. And as you'll know, Thruxton's very difficult to test at. Yeah. We'd never been there in the car. But the following weekend was the first round of the Munro um, uh, uh, championship, uh, Slim Car Championship. So we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll enter that championship and we'll use it just as a test. Yeah. And then because the following week was the second round of the Unirail. Anyway, so we went to the Monroe uh, series and I won that as well. So I'm now leading two championships again. Yeah. So I had not really enough budget to do one of the championships, let alone both. But the upshot of it all was I won both championships that year again. So I won four championships in two years. We won <laughs> the Unirail and the Monroe, which became more and more difficult for obvious reasons. And at the end of that championship, those two championships, having won four championships in two years, I then obviously needed to move on again. So we looked at Group A, um, which was where the RS500s were, 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 um, you know, were, were running and were starting to run. And I ended up at Silverstone having won, so I'd won 20, 36, 30, 38. Yeah, I'd won 38 races in two years. And I went to Silverstone the following year, no drive. Yeah. I didn't have a drive. And I actually cried at Silverstone. I remember, like a child, I was crying on my own. Because I thought, what more do I have to do to get into one of these cars? What do I have to do? Yeah. And I think it was the second or third race, Peter Hall, um, who was the ICS, the Rouse ICS part, so he's the ICS part of uh, Rouse ICS. Yeah. I'd got into the car at Alton Park and it was wet there and it, it frightened them. They were monstrous cars. Yeah, I mean, they, they were they were serious things. I mean, that was the two-door Sierra, for a better term, slightly coupéed with the huge rear wing on the back of them. Yeah, exactly. And and they, they, they were just... Well, I don't think there's been a touring car ever. I mean, even now, the, the you know, at Bathurst, we, we were clocked to doing 189 miles an hour down the Conrad Strait. Yeah. And even the current cars are only, I think, they're doing about 185. Yeah. And on the circuits in the same configuration. Um, I mean, in Japan, at Fuji, we were into the 190s in that car, qualified trip, <laughs> which is ridiculous for a touring car, uh, you know. So, uh, anyway... Um, so I had a call and, uh, from Rouse and they said, look, would you like to come and test the car at Thruxton? So I said, yeah, well, that's great. So anyway, I, I got to Thruxton and we did a few laps there and he said, well, that's great. We'd like to offer you the drive and we need X amount of money for you yeah. to get into the car. Um, and I was very fortunate because Shell, who had, had been very good to me, they found the money for me. And, and so I started racing uh, in the sister car next to Andy, Andy Rouse. Yeah. And I mean, where, I mean, it progressed quite nicely from there. I mean, you, though you weren't quite as successful in BTCC, you, you still had a successful career in it. Uh, uh, besides the Sierras, of course, you then moved on to the uh, Peugeot 405s, MI16s, the Mondeos, and the Cavaliers. Uh, and finally, well, uh, finally, the Honda Accords. Well, uh, you say that. I mean, in, in um, 19, 
88 I was driving for Andy and my deal was I mean here's a bit of news for you so the deal was when I got into the car that I wasn't allowed to overtake Andy yeah I wasn't allowed to beat Andy and the only time I was expected to win uh, is if he broke down yeah. or something else happened to him so I thought so they asked me if I was alright with that and I said no I wasn't <laughs> uh, really but I said, however, you know, I'm not in a position to, to, you know, uh, uh, my judgment doesn't make any difference, I'm sure. So, you know, I'll have to, you know, I'll have to agree to it. Yeah. Anyway, when I got to the Grand Prix, because touring cars always supported the British Grand Prix, and if you remember, they used to run after the Grand Prix, and nobody left, because they all actually wanted to watch the touring cars. Because yeah. they were all like flames firing out the side of them and all that sort of thing. And, considerably, and anyway, considerably more spectacular. Well, quite. Um, anyway, I thought, well, anybody that's anybody um, is um, is here. So I overtook Andy, which didn't go down very well. Really. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and then I had a call from Shell. Would I like to race in Australia? Um, in fact, this was on a Wednesday, and they asked me if I wanted to race at the weekend in Australia at Bathurst, which, I, of course, I agreed to do. So I flew over there, and I, I got into the third Dick Johnson car. Yeah. Um, so that was how my relationship with Dick Johnson in Australia evolved. Um, and because of the control situation, I didn't want to have the control. Mike Smith was in a similar situation driving the BMW uh, with um, Frank Sittner. So we decided that we might set up a team and, and uh, we went against the establishment. Yeah. Know? So we, as a private entity, went against the factory teams. Everyone said, well, you can't do this. That's you know, that's not, not going to work, is it? So we thought, well, I can't see any reason why not. So we did and we beat the factory teams. And of course in 19, I should have won it in 89, but um, there are reasons why that didn't happen, uh, legal reasons why it didn't happen from uh, one of our competitors who should remain nameless. Uh, but in 1990, you know the story there, I, I think we won more races in the RS500 than anybody else. Yeah. Um, so that was very lucky in 1990. And of course in 91, the two litre formula was introduced. Um, and that then became more difficult. You then had the likes of people like Williams coming in and Aerodynamics came into it and all those other things. So it became more difficult. Unless you were in a front-running car, it was a very difficult uh, scenario. So yes, you're right. I then, I, I ended up, I was in, I was racing in Macau um, with, for Watson's Water in 1990. I actually led that race and I, I crashed. I still don't know why I crashed now, actually, but I did. I, I, I hit the barrier fairly hard. Um, and um, I was having people calling me. I had five manufacturers calling me, including Ford. And because I'm quite loyalistic, I decided to stay with Ford, which we did. And at the end of the following year, which probably was only 10 months later, Ford decided to pull out of... Um, as a touring car racing, so I ended up the only place I could go to was was Persia, yeah. which was not an easy time. Well, it's a bit like talking to Patrick Watts. The problem Peugeot seemed to have was funding or development. They didn't seem to pour into it what the other manufacturers were were, were putting into their uh, BTCC and saloon car racing. The, 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 the problem 
with the team was I, I got hired by one of the directors of, of um, one of the marketing directors of, of Peugeot UK Peugeot France there's a discord between Peugeot France and Peugeot UK they're basically for whatever reason there's history there that they don't particularly like each other but the cars in Europe were winning yeah they wanted to build their own car and my opinion was at the time was that you haven't got the ability to build a front running car but management there was poor um, and it was very poor you know the, the, the person that was running it did not have the experience yeah. uh, to be able to, to, to run a team and, 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 and of course the team suffered because of that the guys had only ever done rallying nothing wrong with rallying at all but you know when you run a, a touring cars when these the super touring cars were at their peak if you were one millimeter out on ride height you couldn't do a time yeah they were so critical on the setup and 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 of course you then need reproducibility to you know because the cars are generally only together when the cars are on the track the moment you come in they're changing gear ratios because maybe the winds change direction and a plethora of other things trying to extract maximum amount of speed that you can out of them um but it's quite interesting with that car because um uh, during the year that i mean what here's a here's an interesting thing they the, the rear arms on that car were trained what they call trailing arms yeah so, so you had um because they're trailing arms and you're running flicks on the car that, that you'd have some flex in in the, in the in the rear suspension which meant that the toes so the way that the wheels pointed could change and that made a difference to the handling of the vehicle so they decided to, to which they could legally is to create a completely new rear beam on the car which they duly did we went to Snetterton with this new beam on. I went out and the rear beam was flexing so badly it was unbelievable. And I came out and came back in one lap and I, and I and the guy that was running, Jack called Mick Limford, he said, why have you come in? I said, because the rear of the car is flexing so badly, it's terrible. He said, it can't be. I said, well, why, I'm telling you it is. Why, why do you say it can't be? He said, it can't be because we spent a quarter of a million pounds on it. <laughs> anyway. So we then put it all back into the truck and went off tyre testing in Jerez, in Spain. And in Jerez, you go up the straight, it goes to the right, and then there's a hairpin, very fast left-hand bend. And in that car that was mid-corner, mid you went to fourth gear, so it's about 100 miles an hour. Yeah. And on the third lap, the rear beam snapped. It actually snapped. Yeah. Uh, this new rear beam that I'd already said wasn't any good, it snapped. And snapped so badly that it spun three and a half times on its own axis and we didn't hit the wall yeah so we put the old trailing arms back on but the interesting thing about that car was i then got selected uh to 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 represent england as a wild card for england in the world championships at monza and i my contract was with Peugeot UK, so I was allowed to drive any car that I wanted. But I went to the director of Peugeot and I said, look, I'm happy to, to use the Peugeot, but as long as I've got full autonomy, you pay me a lot of money to drive the car, but no one seems to want to listen to me. Yeah. And, and will you allow me to have full autonomy on the car? And they said, yes, we will. So we went to Monza and I did 
I think I did about three laps and I came in and I said I said to the engineer, I said, what, what I'd like to do, I've never been to Monza, what I'd like to do is I'd like to drop the car by half an inch. Well, that's a huge amount of, uh, you know, to drop the car that much is a lot. They said, well, we can't. I said, why not? I said, well, because if we drop it half an inch, the tyres might rub the wings inside. Yeah. So I said, so we stand to lose a set of tyres then, do we? Or, so we need to drop it down. And I think we only had about two and a half hours testing. Anyway, they duly dropped the car and I qualified the car. It was either second or third in the world. Now, it had been a midfield running car in the UK and we're now at the very, with the very, very best. Because, you know, touring cars at that time did attract the very best drivers in the world. And we qualified, it was either second or third in the world ahead of the two French Peugeots and they're all over us, you know, so it's very funny actually. Now, um, we are going to have to hold it there and come back for part two next week. So, for the moment, Rob Gravit, thank you very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show and we will return next Sunday. Look forward to that, Mark. Good to talk to you. beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytyres.co.uk. 